So uh, today's sermon is a, a one-off in anticipation of our new house groups um, commencing next week. So Johnny will be focusing on why it's a good thing for each of us where possible um, to be involved in house groups to encourage and build up each other. So Johnny will be teaching us from Ephesians chapter 4, the passage is verse 7 to 16, and his theme is spiritual bodybuilding. Now if you're expecting to see Johnny in a muscle vest, that's the the wrong type of uh, bodybuilding. Um, Next week we will be returning to our studies in Mark's Gospel. Now I'm just going to ask Samuel um, if he can come up and read the passage for us. Thank you, Samuel. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking, the truth that in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it built itself upon love. Welcome to, to, to Kevin's. My name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron, and it's really great to have you with us. And for I guess for a number of us, the first Sunday of the new year, or at least facing down a new term starting tomorrow. Now this morning, as, as Kevin's mentioned, we're going to be spending some time thinking about part of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in a place called Ephesus. And it would be helpful, I think, both to me and I trust to you too, to have that open in front of you as we walk through it over the course of the next few minutes. But as well as um, wishing you a warm welcome, uh, Kevin, I think, again, touched on this. I'm not quite sure how long into a new year it is socially acceptable to wish people a happy new year. I I will take that chance, though, uh, and wish you all a very happy new year. Uh, But even if that is a bit too late, it definitely isn't too late to start doing some planning. Because this is a point of the year, isn't it, when, when lots of us take some time to evaluate our priorities and to make plans, decide what's really worth pursuing in the year to come. And I'm not the only one to to think that. The data bears it out. Traffic on recruitment websites is higher, apparently, in January than at any other time of year as people plan to move into a new job or a new career. Hits on travel agency websites are higher in January than at any other time of year as people plan some summer sunshine as a light at the end of a long, dark, wintry tunnel. 
And um, and gyms are busier in January than at any other time of year as people plan to get in shape. Now, they're often full of people like me who have little to no idea how to operate any of the equipment, uh, but they're still full nonetheless. January is a good time to evaluate and to plan. And actually, that last kind of January planning, planning to get a body in shape, is what I'm going to be encouraging each of us to get involved in over the next few minutes. Because as Kevin's already mentioned, it's my plan, it's our plan as elders, that we commit ourselves as a church family in 2023 to bodybuilding. Not uh, physical bodybuilding, you'll be glad to hear, and I must apologize for the mental image Kevin left us with uh, of of me in uh, a muscle vest, but spiritual bodybuilding. And in fact, that isn't just our plan as elders, not something that we've dreamt up on our own. It's part of God's plan for us as a church. And in fact, it's part of his plan for the entire cosmos. That might sound like quite a grand thing to say, but to see that, just look with me, if you do have a Bible with you, at Ephesians chapter 1. This is a really key idea in the whole letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read in from verse 9. Making known to us, says Paul, the mystery of God's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. See, God's plan for the world and for the entire cosmos, in fact, is unity. That a world which is fractured and desperate and that people who are opposed both to God and to one another will one day be reconciled. Reconciled with God and with one another, people from every nation and people group and language and class, all of whom believe in Jesus Christ, will one day be perfectly united in their submission to and worship of this God. Now, for some of us, that might sound like a bit of a, a strange or a wacky idea, I guess, that God will unite all things under himself, not least because well, things might not feel all that desperate at the moment. You might feel as though you'd get on with most of the people you know most of the time. And that the same is true of your relationship to God, that, that if there really is a God up there, that you and he just get on fine. Well, that isn't how God sees it. The Bible tells us that in actual fact, all of us are at war. War with God. We've rejected him and rebelled against him. And not only that, whilst we might get on with some of the people we know, at least those whom we like, well, there is a fracture line, a fault line throughout humanity. And actually, you only need to turn the news on to notice that. We are riven with division and with hostility. We are a world at war, both with God and with one another. And yet this plan of God, this purpose, is that rather than giving people what they deserve for warring with him, 
rather than giving us war in return, God's plan, his ultimate purpose is to rescue people and unite us together under him. That's one of the big, big promises of the Christian faith to anyone who follows Jesus. Now, perhaps you've never heard that kind of thing being said before. And perhaps it's not quite the the kind of idea of the Christian faith that you had in your mind before you came this morning. But I do hope you can see quite how attractive it is. War and division and hostility all being done away with once and for all. Living in good and right relationship with our maker and with one another. That is God's ultimate plan and purpose for all who would follow him. And so if that does sound attractive to you, if it piques your interest, please don't stop listening now. Come along next Sunday morning, as Kevin mentioned, we'll be going back into Mark's account of Jesus' life on Sundays between now and Easter time. Listen to what Jesus himself has to say about it. Or maybe you could come to the course that, uh, that, that Kevin trailed as well, Hope Explored, starting uh, a week on Tuesday evening on the 17th, where you'll have space to ask questions about some of those claims, as outlandish as they might seem as I tell them to you now. We would love it if you came along. Please do speak to me afterwards if that's something you'd be interested in. But whilst that idea might strike some of us as being a bit strange, for others it might just sound wonderful. It's a stirring thing when you give time to think about it, the hope that God will one day unite everything that's desperate and divided and broken under his good and right and perfect rule. That is a wonderful prospect. And yet, whilst there's a future dimension to it, Paul says that if you are a Christian today, that you're already participating in God's unity plan here and now. See, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he tells the, the church family there that part of God's unity plan is to bring together a desperate group of people in a church, turning a group of folks like us into a body. And at the beginning of our chapter this morning, chapter 4 of Ephesians, he calls on that body, on those Christians, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Maintain. Notice that word. That implies that the unity between Christians already at one level exists. And so a local church, a church family like this one at Hebron, which to a watching world might well look quite weak and quite small and quite fragile and quite temporary, well, it's actually a snapshot It's a foretaste, even, of God's eternal unity plan, his purposes for the entire cosmos. It's an extraordinary thing. But what does any of that have to do with your plans for the new year? Why should that rank amongst your plans to, to look perhaps for a new job or to book a summer holiday or to get to the gym? Well, whilst Paul is clear that God has already done a wonderful work in the church, turning a desperate group of folks like us into a united body, well, he also wants us to see this morning that he wants that body to keep growing. Growing in number as more and more people trust in Jesus for themselves. And growing together. Growing to be more and more united. Until chapter 4, verse 13, we all 
attain to the unity of the faith. See, unity is something that we maintain. In one sense, it's already a done deal. And yet in another sense, it's also something we attain. We grow in and grow towards as Christians. And so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the big applications of this passage in Ephesians to to Christians, to members of this body here, is that all Christians are to be body builders. Because if God's plan for the entire cosmos is to bring everything together, to unite us all, well then the way we make our plans for the year to come in accordance with God's plan for eternity to come is to commit ourselves to that being united together, to body building growing numerically, but growing in unity, growing up in maturity. And we're going to just spend a few minutes thinking about exactly how Paul thinks we should do that as a church family. We're going to do that under three points. Wonderful, thank you. The first point there is victorious Jesus has given word gifts to his church, verses 7 to 11. Now, um, I wonder if you saw just before Christmas... The scenes of the Argentinian football team returning to Buenos Aires after winning the World Cup. Apparently roughly 4 million people turned out on the streets of Buenos Aires to celebrate their success. Which isn't too far off the entire population of Scotland. It's an extraordinary thing. And the team started a victory parade through Buenos Aires on an open top bus. But things became too snarled, understandably, with 4 million people there. And so they had to take to helicopters to complete the tour. Surrounded by adoring fans. Now, as a fan of Scotland and Air United, I've never had any reason to involve myself in that kind of victory parade before. But what's being described in Ephesians 4 is something like those scenes in Buenos Aires. See, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, one of the songs from the Old Testament. And in Psalm 68, God is pictured as a divine warrior. One who has won victory after victory after victory for his people. And after he's won, he then ascends, he climbs a mountain that's called Mount Zion in a victory parade. He is surrounded by celebrating crowds to establish his throne there. That's what's going on in Psalm 68. And Paul takes us there in Ephesians 4 because that picture, the picture of a divine warrior, victorious, is fulfilled, says Paul, in Jesus. That in Jesus' resurrection and his return to be with his father, he is fulfilling that Psalm 68 picture. Just notice that with me. Verse 8. When he, that is Jesus, ascended, went up on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What Paul wants us to have in mind is a picture of the victorious Jesus who's defeated his enemies. But not just because that victory was a great victory, though it was. But because in his victory, Jesus distributes the spoils of war to the surrounding crowds. Picture Lionel Messi, the captain of the Argentinian football team, at the front of the open top bus, throwing out winner's medals to the surrounding crowds. That's something like the idea in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 8, we're told that the victorious Jesus gave gifts to his people. And in verse 11, we find out what those gifts, what those medals are. Verse 11. And Jesus gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. The gifts that Jesus gives to his church that this victorious warrior hands out to the surrounding masses are people. And it might look like a slightly random list of people when you first read it, but they are all people with something in common. He gave, firstly, verse 11, apostles and prophets. Paul's already explained in Ephesians that apostles and prophets are the ones who wrote God's words down in the scriptures. They are revealers, foundational revealers of God's word. Next, verse 11, he gave evangelists, people who are gifted at teaching the good news of those scriptures to people who haven't believed them yet, spreaders of God's word. And thirdly, he gave pastors or shepherds and teachers, people who are gifted to teach those scriptures to Christians, whether from a pulpit or as a small group leader or in a one-to-one, teachers of God's word. See, the thing that, that those gifts have in common is that they are principally word gifts. They are revealers of God's word, spreaders of God's word, teachers of God's word. God has gifted his church with word people. Now, I once heard a church minister declare from Ephesians chapter 4 with his tongue, I should say, placed firmly in his cheek that this passage meant that he, as a Christian teacher, was God's gift to the church. And I think if I did that this morning, declared that I was God's gift to the church, you'd be well within your rights to ask if I came with a gift receipt. Because not just, not just because I'd be a pretty underwhelming present, But because it isn't the people themselves, it isn't the individuals that Paul has his mind set on. See, the reason he gives this collection of words people from foundational ones like apostles through to shepherds, pastors and teachers. Well, it isn't that the people themselves are especially important, but that the words are. The Bible, as it was inspired and written down. The Bible, as it's faithfully spread by evangelists. And the Bible, as it's faithfully taught by shepherds and teachers. See, bodybuilding is what we're to be about as Christians, says Paul. And Bible listening is part of how we do that. And it is just worth pausing there for a moment to think about whether that is one of our priorities for the coming year. As individuals and as a church family. To listen to the Bible to God speaking, and to people faithfully teaching the Bible to us. We might devote ourselves to doing that in a number of different ways. We might do it by starting a Bible reading plan, setting a pattern of reading the Bible for a few minutes each each day, whether on our own, or with a friend, or around the breakfast table with a family. We might do it by engaging with Bible teaching, Thinking carefully about what's been said here on a Sunday, for example, both about whether it's been faithful to the Bible and about how you might apply it to your own life. Or we might do it by coming to a home group or a Bible study, like the ones that will be starting in several houses around the city over the course of the next couple of weeks. See, joining one of those groups isn't just like joining a book group where we come along with a set of thoughts that we're keen to share with other folks about what that that book meant and what we thought about it. And then we tend to leave with the same thoughts that we had when we arrived. 
No, one key objective of home groups is to listen to what the Bible actually says. Because we think that that's part of God's gift to his church. See, bodybuilding is what we're to be about as Christians. And Bible listening is part of how we do that. But that kind of listening... Well, it isn't the end of the bodybuilding process that Paul kind of spells out for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Because I wonder if you notice that those word gifts in verses 7 to 11, they aren't where the words stop in Ephesians 4. Let's think about that under our next heading. Those word gifts equip Christians to do word speaking, verse 12. Now, um, I wonder what you think a really good sermon or Bible talk should achieve or should accomplish in the people who listen to it what should it do a bible talk some of us might think a really good bible talk should inspire us inspire us in our faith and in our lives some that it should entertain that it's a bit like after dinner speaking the more illustrations and pop culture references the better Some of us, that a Bible talk's main objective ought to be being as brief as humanly possible. Well, Paul tells the Ephesians about one of God's intended objectives of Bible teaching. And of all those other word gifts he's given to his church. Just notice that with me. Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. See, word ministry isn't just meant to to fill a few minutes in a service each Sunday, nor is it actually just an event in and of itself. It's an event that sparks other events. It's meant to equip, to prepare and to enable saints, or in other words, all Christians, to serve. Now, that principle applies generally that the Bible equips Christians for all different kinds of service as part of a church family. I remember once being asked by a church to come and speak in a passage in John's account of Jesus' life in John chapter 13, where Jesus, in a mind-blowing act of humility, washed his disciples' feet. And a week or so later, a woman who was a member of the church where I'd been teaching got in touch to tell me that she'd just committed herself to help a struggling young mum to look after her children. And she did that even though she knew it was going to be quite a difficult thing for her to do personally. And the reason she was up for doing it, she said, was that I listened to John 13 last week and decided that it's impossible to wash someone's feet without getting your hands dirty. And that was just a wonderful application of that passage. Listening to the Bible, equipping someone to move on in service. And it can do that in all sorts of different kinds of ways. But there is one quite specific kind of service that Paul has in mind in Ephesians 4, I think. Because he says, verse 11, it's a kind of ministry that builds others up. And we're told about the kind of ministry that builds others up in verse 15. Just read that with me. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I wonder if you see the connection there. 
there's a, a word type work going on from evangelists and pastors and teachers. And that kind of word type work is equipping all Christians to do word type work. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Or in other words, fueled by listening to God's words. We lovingly speak truths from God's word into one another's lives. And it is so important that those two things are kept together, truth and love. Doling out truth without love can be a painful and actually quite a destructive thing. And doling out love without truth often descends into sentimentality and little more. But truth and love together, says Paul, well, that's the fertilest of fertile soil for Christians growing. Now, practically, what does it actually look like to speak truth in love to one another? Well, just give it 10 or so minutes and you'll see. At the end of a service like this one, as on every other Sunday, as one Christian turns to another Christian and encourages them in their walk with Jesus, initiates a conversation about something they found striking from the Bible passage we we're looking at today or, or that they've been reading this week. Perhaps you might give it a week or so's time and, and sit in on a home group if you want to know what speaking the truth in love might look like. A small group of people getting to know each other over time, listening to Bible truths together and helping each other apply those truths to each other's lives, praying them into each other's lives. See, home groups might not always look like the grandest of things as we gather together in a living room somewhere in the city and we drink tea and we read and we chat. But they're just a wonderful context for truth-fueled, speaking the truth in love to one another. See, word gifts equip Christians to do word work, to speak the truth in love. And listen, though it might not always look all that grand sitting in someone's living room drinking tea. Speaking the truth in love really, really matters. Remember back to how we started a few minutes ago with God's grand plan for the world and for everything in it to be united together under Jesus. Well, you see, this, speaking the truth in love, is part of how we line our plans up for the year to come with God's plans for the eternity to come. And we'll see that under our final heading. Christians' words speaking builds the body in maturity and unity. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that this is a good time of the year to evaluate how things are going for us in life personally, whether in our employment situation or in our physical fitness, if we can bear uh, to evaluate how we're doing in our physical fitness. It's a good chance to take stock But it's also a good chance to evaluate how a church is doing, both a local church and on a wider level, to to, to plot a way forward over the coming year. And I wonder if you, or or anyone else for that matter, were to evaluate how the Bible-believing church is doing in Scotland overall, how you would say that we're getting on. See, they might describe the church in Scotland as being a bit disparate, perhaps, Unable to agree with one another on very much. They might even think of Christians as actually being a little bit immature 
a bit kind of petulant, always telling other people what to do and how they should be behaving. And the answer to those kinds of problems in lots of people's minds, to division and to immaturity, is that Christians just need to be a bit less uptight about what they think. A bit more flexible with the truth. I recently read a magazine article that kind of summed that idea up. It was entitled, Doctrine Divides But Love Unites. And you might have heard that phrase being used before, or at least come across the idea before. The idea is that Christians who are obsessed with truth, with getting teaching right, well, they so often fall out with each other, and so we need to set truth aside if we're ever going to be united in love. Now, it is fair to say that Christians can be divided by disagreements over what's true and what isn't, and even to admit that those disagreements can become very immature indeed. But I wonder if you notice that Paul seems to think that, that being fueled by Bible truth and by speaking the truth and love to one another, well, the result won't be division. Nor even is that a result of immaturity or petulance. No, it's quite the opposite, in fact. In verses 13 and 14, he paints pictures Two portraits of two different kinds of church family. One, in verse 13, of a church that's shaped by truth spoken in love. And one, in verse 14, of a church that isn't. Just notice that with me. The first church he tells us about is a church family who, in verse 13, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. The church shaped by Christians speaking the truth in love to one another, says Paul, will grow to be more united and more mature. But the second church he tells us about, well, they're just the opposite. The second kind of church, verse 14, is a church full of children. Now, the Bible does often speak of childlikeness as being a positive thing. And being childlike is good when you're looking for someone to be innocent or trusting. But it isn't always a good thing. You wouldn't necessarily want to employ a little one as a lifeguard, for example. Because a child's likely to, well, not to rescue you in trouble, but themselves to be tossed around by the waves as they wade in to help you. And you see, that's the image Paul uses, verse 14. We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, if it's truth in love that grows mature Christians, verse 13, well, then it's untruth, doctrine that's shaped by cunning, and craftiness and deceit that keeps us as children. And that's why we're committed to truth speaking here at Hebron. Because we want to be like the the church of verse 13, not the church of verse 14. It's why I've got an annoying habit of asking you to have the Bible open in front of you every single time I stand up to speak to you on a Sunday morning. It's not just because it buys me a few moments to get my notes settled and to get my own Bible open to the right page. No, it's because I want to make sure that you're sure what I'm saying is right. It's actually what the Bible says and not what I'm dreaming up. 
It's why the conversations we have with one another, even after a Sunday service like today, really do matter. Of course, it's good to catch up and enjoy each other's company to find out what you've been up to over Christmas and New Year and to meet folks we haven't met before. But it's also such a super context for truth in love, for helping each other to grow as Christians. And it is why we think home groups are a good idea. Of course, we appreciate that for some, it's just not going to be possible to come to one. And we don't want anyone feeling bad about that. But the reason we're keen to expand them and that more and more people are part of a regular Bible study is that it's such a great place, a great context for this truth and love stuff to happen. See, God's eternal plan for the entire cosmos is unity under the Lord Jesus. His purposes for his church, for this church, are growing maturity and unity. And the means he gives us to get there, enabled by his Holy Spirit being at work among us, are listening to Bible truth and speaking Bible truth in love to one another. And so I'm going to ask the Lord now to help us to do that, to commit ourselves to his plans and purposes for us as a church family, for bodybuilding this coming year. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that because of that victory, you, Lord Jesus, promise an eternity in right relationship with the one who made us. And even with one another. And not only that, we praise you that since that victory, you have given gifts to your church word gifts the bible and those who teach it we ask lord that you please help each of us in this coming year to pay ever closer attention to it and that you would please use it to equip us as a church family to speak to one another truth in love that each of us would grow as a body of christians being ever more united as a church family and growing in maturity. And Lord, we ask that for any of us who don't yet believe in Jesus' victory over death and over judgment, and for whom his plan to bring all things together under his right rule might sound outlandish at first glance, would you please convince us of the truth of it? That many people might know the wonderful joy the freedom of death defeated, of sin and guilt dealt with, and of an eternity with the one who knows us as we really are, and yet who has loved us to the uttermost. We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.